Well, this morning we complete the series on the relationship within the intimate relationship between a husband and his wife uh, that is presented here in First Peter. It has taken us six weeks to get through this, um, but it is essential that we get this right. We're going to find out just how important that is today. Uh, we are not done with relationships. We're going to press on in a couple of weeks in studying the further relationships within the church family that pick up in verse 8 and, and jump into chapter 4 as well. Uh, and so we have that coming before us. Uh, so we're not done with the relationships, but we are here uh, finishing up this familial relationship uh, between a husband and his wife. And as we do so, uh, we want to be reminded of what has come before. Uh, not only for the husband's role, but the wife's role as well. Uh, for it is obvious, I hope to any observer or anyone living, that this is a cooperative endeavor, as any relationship is. A relationship is, that is one-sided is not really a relationship. Uh, it is more of an obsession. Uh, it is when it is mutual that it is uh, something that can be developed. It is something that can uh, be beneficial. It is something that then can be uh, reaping the blessings that God intends with relationships. We're reminded that God wants us in relationship with him and that all the lateral relationships in our life should evidence his presence in our life. Which means that if we want to develop good relationship with other people, uh, we need to be attentive to our relationship with God. That that is a priority and we're going to see that here. That is not just by a logical understanding, but it is by a forceful teaching of God's word that you uh, have your relationships dependent upon and intimately involved with your relationship with Christ. But it is also, the reverse is also true, as we're going to see today, that your relationship with God is dependent upon and intimately... <laughs> influenced by your relationship with each other. It is not one directional. Well, I'm working on my relationship with God, so then I can have relationships with other people. And in thinking that you can do that in isolation, because that's just not possible, but more importantly, it is not what God expects. But rather that as we develop our relationship with God, we are at the same time uh, practicing what we already know to be his will in our relationships with one another that these are mutually dependent upon each other, that they are leaning on one another. If we pull one out, we destroy the other. So we are not called to isolation, that somehow we can go up and uh, climb up to a high place and, and in that isolated place that we could develop a real relationship with God, and uh, that has been practiced over the centuries by Christians by well-meaning Christians that were wrong. Uh, when we were in Greece, we visited Meteora and uh, saw all the uh, little places on all these hilltops, uh, steep, steep places, very difficult to get to. 
Uh, and yet, men climbed up there and built themselves little places to isolate themselves so they could develop their relationship with God. And they should have been a little bit more in God's word and found out you cannot do that. For God demands you to be in relationship with one another as you relate to him. And in many respects, it is the measure of your relationship with him is your relationship with one another. If you love God, what does John tell you in 1 John? Well, you have to love the brotherhood. And if you don't want to be around your brothers, then there's something wrong with your relationship with God. And similarly, if, if, if there's something wrong with your relationship with God, you're not going to be around your brothers. The love of God and the love of the brotherhood is interdependent. And it is measured that way. And we're going to see that similarly within our homes. And so we are called to relationships with God. We want to develop that, but not in isolation. And then we discover that sometimes our relationship with God is dependent upon our relationship with one another. That is that I cannot rightly relate to God because of how I am treating other men. In the Old Testament, we find this extensively where God takes Israel to task and then Judah to task. And what does he keep calling them to? You are an unjust people because look at how you're treating the fatherless and widows. It demonstrates. And so I am rejecting you because of how you treat each other. That here, the weakest among you, you are abusing, you're taking advantage of them instead of making yourself available to them and allowing them to take advantage of you. And so God says, because of that, I'm cutting you off from a relationship with me. And so when we see that this is a principle that is consistent throughout God's word, we're not going to find it just in the verse we're going to see today, but all through scripture, that our relationship one with another is going to affect our relationship with God. And we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and, and to the time afterwards where we can see it similarly, that what happened between a man and his wife? Well, she went into sin. He joined her. Uh, what happens now? They're naked and ashamed. Who are they ashamed in front of? It's just you and your wife. There's no other people around. But that, yet they're covering their nakedness. They're hiding from God. And so their broken relationship with each other is a mirror of their broken relationship with God, but it is actually their relationship with each other that is affected first, then their relationship with God. We see it in the next generation. What happens? You know, we're trying to develop a good relationship with God. Abel is over there trying to develop it, you know, trying to obey God's design of the, without the shedding of blood, there's no, uh, relation, there's no covenant. And so he, he has the blood sacrifice. Cain, a farmer that's going to produce stuff out of the soil, brings forth his offering. It's not according to God's design. And he is jealous of his brother. And he murders his brother. And that affects his relationship with God. And then he is cursed by God. His offering was rejected. Yes, there was a, a downheartedness because God rejected his offering. Uh, and certainly there was that, that effect. And then the effect of this that further brought even a worsening effect in his relationship with God. 
And so we find that from the very beginning, it is the intermingling of personal relationships that demonstrates where our relationship with God stands. In the teaching of Jesus Christ, we have it laid out before you. How can you say that, that I, I follower of Jesus Christ when you turn a deaf ear to those who are hungry and thirsty? Jesus Christ says, when you feed them, you fed me. When you ignore them, you're ignoring me. That we do not have permission to think that we can develop spiritually in isolation. And that maybe needs to be taught a lot earlier during the last year and a half. <laughs> that it is in the context of relationships that our relationship with God is developed and measured. And that we're going to see today within our family, as within the marriage as well. Let's again read 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, Husbands, likewise... Dwell with them, that's your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And so we have a warning tacked on to the end of these instructions to husbands. Uh, I really didn't intend to have this as a separate sermon. I really wanted to really handle this warning both weeks, uh, but I wanted to take it aside because it is such a serious matter. Here we have a man's most intimate relationship with God dependent upon his, his most intimate human relationship. And I say that, that prayer is the most intimate relationship we have with God uh, very purposely. I don't say that offhand. This is your engagement with God. We have access to the Holy of Holies, we have access through Jesus Christ by prayer to God's throne itself. I don't know of what more intimacy we have with God than the access of prayer. That we can speak with God and he hears us. And don't you think that that is always the case for all men? It is very obvious from Scripture that God doesn't hear every prayer. And that bothers some people when I teach that. Uh, even from when I was an in, a pastoral intern, I taught it once. I mean, I'm a young guy right out of seminary. I said that, and I had three or four people in the church. You know, and I'm a young guy, and, and you know, here's some mature, that's not, you know, do you really study your scripture? I said, really? Um, I'm pretty sure the Bible says that particularly. Uh, flat out, I'm surprised there's any opposition to it. But yet, I've had opposition to that every time I've taught it. God does not... Listen to every prayer of man. We know that. We have told that in Hebrews. We're told that in James. We're told that in Isaiah. We're told that in most of the minor prophets uh, that essentially God, when he turns his face away from you, you are in trouble. And there's only one prayer that he will hear, and that is the prayer of repentance, of sorrow, of confession. That's the only prayer. The other ones aren't heard. I'm not listening to those. Cry out to me all you want. I don't hear you. Let's go to Isaiah 1 and see um, where it's blatantly said, uh, told us there. Isaiah, big book of the Bible. We should be able to find out pretty easily. 
Isaiah chapter 1. One of the first things this prophet had to tell people was what God thought of their worship. Notice their worship. Let's pick up in, oh, let's start in verse uh, 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? So they show up at the temple ready to worship, and God says, what are you here for? Why, what, what makes you think I even want you here? You're just trampling on my courts. Bring no more, verse 13, futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. And we often think of raising up hands in worship as part of our singing and it is not that in Scripture is part of your praying. Praying you do with hands lifted up, not singing. We kind of got it messed up. It says, you lift up your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And he invites them then to get washed. <laughs> to make this right, to... to Stop doing your evil and start doing good and, and, and be cleansed. This is what God waits for. And so here we have a direct statement by God saying, I will not hear your prayers as long as you persist in this activity. And he goes on and relates that activity in many different forms there throughout the book of Isaiah. You have 66 chapters there to look through that and, and primarily in the first uh, 40 chapters or so especially um, you're going to have the woes, all the woes upon Israel, upon uh, the nations, upon Isaiah himself. So we find that this is not an unheard of concept that something stops God from hearing our prayers. In this section of Isaiah, it was their idolatry, their harlotry, it was their, it was their maltreatment of widows and orphans that we talked about, uh, their uh, synchronism of bringing the world into their worship to the point that there was no aspect of worship that God was pleased with. They went through all the motions on the Sabbath and the new moons and the feast days, uh, though we've been studying on, Sunday, on Lord's Day evenings. Um, they went through all that properly, uh, but God was disgusted by it because of what was going on in other areas of their life. Do not think that you can sow discord and evil and all of this during the week and then come in here and God will be pleased. It's simply not the case. There are many times I'm convinced that our worship is just rejected by God offhand because there's no reality in our life. So where does that reality come into play? And again, the focus here for Peter uh, in this passage is on our relationships. Just as many times it was in the Old Testament. What's going on in your relationships is both a measure of and the evidence of. And so God is measuring, we're looking for evidence laterally, that God is measuring you by those relationships. And for the man, 
you're given this warning shot that your prayers be not hindered. The word hindered there in the Greek is really to be cut off. Your prayers are just cut off. It's that, uh, and the word, that, that word is used by Paul several places in, in where he talks about, we wanted to go into Asia, but, but we were hindered. We wanted to come visit you, but Satan hindered us. Uh, and so we were just kept from doing it. We were kept from being able to do what we wanted to do in this, in this case, in this intentions, that we were just cut off. And it is um, circumstances that do that. It's Satan that does that. It's sin that does that. Now, some commentaries you'll see will say, well, who's hindering your prayers? And some will say, well, this is a disciplinary action of God. And certainly in Isaiah, God does say, I will not hear your prayers. But it was not God that cut off their prayers. It was their own sin that did that. That makes your worship ineffectual and disgusting. And thus your righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah says later on. Yeah, it's the same guy, same audience. All your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. God is disgusted by them, throws them out. And so here we come with a man who says, I I want a right relationship with God, makes that profession, that confession uh, among men. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, or I'm a Christian, uh, and uh, I believe in God. Let's just boil it down even farther. Some will just say, well, I believe in God, and that doesn't tell me a lot because most all the earth believes in God. They call them different names, but they believe in God, whether it's something that they carved or chiseled out of stone or, or uh, poured in a mold. Um, most of the world believes in God. But are you a follower of Jesus Christ? So we make that claim. And then we look at their lives and say, well, where's the productiveness? Where's the spiritual maturing process that we should be seeing? And it's not there. It's, it's AWOL. It's, it's nowhere to be found. And then we say, well, there's a frustration level. Well, I pray and nothing happens. And it never occurs to us that that might be our fault. It's always, well, God doesn't listen to me. And it's God's fault for not answering my prayers. That somehow he's letting me down, and therefore now I begin to question whether I really want to continue this trek of following after God. It never occurs to us that what has cut off our prayers is not that God is inattentive, but that we aren't qualified in our praying. And so really this becomes a study about your spiritual life that is dependent upon your relationship with your wife. In the book of James, chapter 5, we have an instruction to the church, what happens when someone is sick and ill among you. It says, you know, you gather, you do the oil, anointing him with oil, which is more than just a dab of of oil on you. It's kind of like a rub down, a massage um, to invigorate blood flow and things. Uh, And then it says, and to call the elders of the church to pray. And then he makes the statement, it is the prayer of the righteous man that avails much, that is productive, that helps. 
Well, I would understand that to mean if the prayers require a righteousness out of the man, that your prayers are dependent upon your living. They are not, it is not, I'm a good enough person for God to hear me. I'm not making this deal with God based upon my good works. It is rather, I have access to God through Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, through his sacrifice, through the power of his resurrection and ascension, and that he is there as my intercessor, that I have the Holy Spirit within me who, who translates my prayers to him. All of that side is intact and established. That establishes the, the connection. But when it comes to activating that connection, it is required of me to have a, a level of righteousness in my life. With one exception I can find, and that is the prayer of confession and repentance. It says, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I've, I've done this sin, and, and this is something in my life, and please help me cleanse it from my life and create in me this clean heart. The rest of those prayers, from what I can find in Scripture, are dependent. They aren't established by your good works, but they are dependent upon you being righteous. And with a measure of that righteousness isn't what is done in front of my eyes or the world eyes. Um, it is what is done in front of the most intimate eyes that watch your life, and that would be your spouse, your wife. And we are called to, these, to a right relationship with her, and yes, your entire prayer life is dependent upon how you treat your wife. That there are times that God simply says, um, you talk to me when you start treating her right, then I'll start listening. And it doesn't occur to us that that is so important. And, and most men that I talk to will say, well, I want to get right with God, and then I want to get right with my wife, and then I want to get right, and I'm like, can't be done. You can't, I know men are really good at compartmentalization. I've taught that just recently, I think. Uh, but it doesn't work that way. You don't get right with God over here, and then later on get right, God is not going to fall for that. Because they're independent, part of getting right with God is making it right with your wife. And going and saying, hey, I've been offensive to you because I haven't fulfilled the biblical mandate to love you, to, to live with you with understanding, to be Christ for you, to give you honor as a weaker vessel, as to protect, to, to, to uh, shelter. I, I have not treated you as an heir, a joint heir of life. Um, I, I haven't done those things and that needs to be corrected in my life as part of my desire to have a right relationship with God. And this is why God says when you bring a gift to the altar and you remember, I have a problem with this person. What are you supposed to do? Finish giving the gift and then go fix it? No, leave the gift at the altar. Just leave it there. Abandon it. And then go fix that latter relationship. And then come back and you can finish giving it as an act of worship. That's how critical relationships are in your relationship with God, your relationship with each other. 
God says, abandon your acts of worship and correct your relationships laterally, and then you can come back and pick up, and now it will be acceptable. So when I tell people that maybe what needs to happen in our lives more than developing a relationship with God is developing better relationships with each other, they take me to task and I say, no, leave it at the altar. Leave your worship at the altar because it has no value before God when you are at odds with somebody else across the aisle. Next pew, down the street, other side of the bed. It matters that much to God. Then, and, and let's talk about why it matters so much to God. Uh, we have a covenant-loving God. Let me say that again. It's got to sink into you a little bit. We have a covenant-loving God. Uh, when we go through the Old Testament, we divide it up sometimes by the covenants. So we have... Um, the Adamic covenant, we have the, the Abrahamic covenant, we have the Levitical covenant, we have the Davidic covenant, we have all these covenants with God. There's some that we don't really name very often, but are just as important uh, throughout the Old Testament. We just don't mention them very often. Uh, there was a, uh, the Phineas covenant I really like. God promised him that your, you know, your, your household is going to be blessed because you, know, you went and killed all those wicked people among your own camp. And so God is a covenant-loving God. That is, he comes down, he wants to have an agreement, and let's set up, here's your side, here's my side, and, and, let's, and here's what I expect from you, here's what you should expect from me, and let's have this agreement, and we'll have a sacrifice, the shedding of blood establishes the covenant. God loves covenant relationships. He wants that with you, and that's why when Jesus Christ says, this is the covenant that is in my blood, when he shares the first communion service with the disciples. This is the covenant that is in my blood. That when I sacrifice myself, I am here to have a covenant relationship between man and God through Jesus Christ. And so when you think about it, this is, what is the one lateral relationship that is always covenantal in man's experience? It is his, with his wife. And it doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter what culture you are. Every culture understands that it is a relationship between a husband and wife is a covenant relationship. It is universal understanding. And God holds covenants very high. And that's why God says, be careful about taking vows, because I'm going to hold you to them. Don't you foolishly just vow things off, because especially, you know, the guy, you know, whatever greets me at the door, I'm going to dedicate to God a sacrifice, and it's his daughter. Well, that wasn't very bright. Be careful. And that's why James says, let your yes be yes, your no be no, and you don't have to swear because those vows of swearing, God takes seriously. You make a promise, God's going to hold you to it. Well, the one relationship that is covenant-driven in every society is the marriage relationship. Do you think God takes it seriously? You better believe he does. Because he's a covenant-loving God.
and he holds those up much higher than we do. And hence all the rules we have in God's word about and why God hates divorce because divorce is a covenant-breaking act and God hates those. Even when Israel kept breaking the covenant, kept breaking the covenant, what does God say? I'm going to be faithful. I have to curse you, but I'm not going to forget you. I'm still going to keep a covenant relationship with you. And even in the New Testament, it, we're told in Romans by Paul, you know, there's still a covenant promise for Israel. It's still there. Why? Because Israel's good? No, because God is faithful. He loves covenants and he holds them in extraordinarily high esteem. He counts them and measures them very high in his evaluation of men. And in your life, husbands, the covenant relationship with your wife is the highest covenant relationship outside of your one with God and God will measure you by it. And this is the evidence of it. He will not hear your prayers when you are at odds with your wife in violation of his word. When you do not love your wife, when you do not grant to her access to yourself on every level of intimacy, whether it be physical, mental, emotional, when you do not honor her place in in. in in your home, when you do not dwell them with, with a understanding, with knowledge, and, 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 and all that we have talked about, when you do not love her with an undying sacrifice, it will directly and immediately affect your relationship with God. Your prayers will be hindered. Your, your most intimate act of worship, praying, is interrupted. It's cut off. I'm not going to hear you. Because you're not a righteous man. Because righteousness doesn't begin out there. Righteousness doesn't begin in the church. Righteousness begins at home between a man and his wife. This is where righteousness begins. And perhaps one of the first things we need to be talking to men about when they make a confession of Christ is about the relationship with their wife. Number one issue. Let's go to this other really important covenant that God cares about. But because we have lost track of that value system of God, we have people coming in saying, well, you know, the divorce remarriage thing, well, I was divorced before I got saved, so that doesn't count. Wrong. You made a covenant relationship there. God holds all covenants high. Well, I'm a new creature, and I've heard this argument repeatedly throughout my ministry. And it holds no water. Because God holds those relationships those covenant relationships, those vows, and he holds them solid and says, you break those, you are a covenant breaker. And prayer access and worship is on a basis of a covenant with him. And hence, we are called to preserve those and do every act to do so. And we talked about the women, of what might you have to suffer to keep that covenant intact? Yeah, it might be 
suffering to keep it intact. And it might even be life-threatening to keep it intact. But that's what our covenant relationship with God is too, isn't it? Are we willing to suffer for that covenant? Are we willing to have life threatened over that covenant? I hope so. But if we are so willing to abandon this covenant on earth, uh, how can we claim that we're going to be faithful to that covenant with God? And God sees this, and he measures man by it. Peter's not going to be done with this concept of our prayer life. Um, In fact, let's just go on a little bit further to verse 12 of the same chapter. Uh, Let's read 10 through 12. It's a quote. And so, he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Uh, this isn't necessarily just in the, this is going to be in the context of relationships within the church we're going to talk about in weeks to come. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And righteousness is dictated by the commands of God, and in the marital relationship, it has these demands upon me as husband, and therefore my access to, intimate access to God's throne of power uh, demands something of me in my relationship with my wife. That, yes, how you treat her matters to God so much that he may not hear your prayers. Pray to your blue in the face. Spin the wheel. Uh, You don't know what that's from, but um, that's in in the Corinthians. The Corinthians had prayer wheels because you needed help to create this fan thing to get your prayers up to God. It wasn't a Christian thing. It was a pagan thing, but Paul referenced it a little bit. Spin the wheel. Try to get those prayers. Try to Try to scream them up high. You know, we're willing to fast. We're willing to, to pray. We're willing to get on our knees. We're willing to do all these things to be repetitive. But we aren't willing to go get right with our wife and treat her the way God's told us to treat her. That's what is demanded of us, is that we be righteous, that we stop doing evil and do what is good. Are we a good thing for our wife? Are we... That one who shelters, protects, provides, uh, understands, and, and knows, and, and is willing to sacrifice everything for her well-being. Are we Christ to her? That's what God's waiting for. I am convinced that much of the, the lack of power in our churches is because of our men being incapable of good praying, effectual praying, because of what's going on in their home life. Because they are distracted by the things of this world away from developing a right relationship with their wives. Now we can add a lot of things. A lot of commentaries I read on this passage added a lot. You know, here's a whole list of things of what husbands should do with your wives. And, and uh, it's extra biblical. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put flesh on this and, 
you have the skeleton that God gives you of how to honor your wife, how to bless her, how to care for her, how to love her. Uh, we have all those instructions, and that's sufficient. You work on those things, and uh, that's what God has given us. Make that the priority of our lives. And see what happens to our prayer life. Not only in its intensity, that is our commitment to it, but also in its effectiveness that our praying may not increase in volume, but it will certainly increase in effectiveness. That now we'll start saying, wow, I prayed and God answered that prayer. And it won't be a rare thing anymore. It'll be the norm. Is God answering your prayers the norm? And I'm not saying yes, no, and wait. I don't hold to that. You guys know that. I've taught that plenty of times. Because John taught us that ask whatever you want, and it'll be given to you. He said it over and over and over again. There were conditions of that. We studied that all out. Part of that condition is that we have righteousness in our life. And on the premise that relationships are where righteousness is really measured by God, and the most intimate ones here in your family are yours. It's interesting that God doesn't have this kind of warning shot to the wives. He doesn't say submit to your husband or your prayers won't be heard. Um, he says submit to your husbands um, and you will be saved through childbearing. Submit to your husbands here in Peter, and what does he say? Does he give a warning? No. He says, uh, you'll be daughters of Abraham. You'll be daughters, like Sarah. Whose daughters you are, if you do no good, are not afraid with any terror. Uh, that you do these things, you'll be very precious in the sight of God. Uh, why would God speak in those terms to our wives and, and in such essentially pretty harsh terms to husbands. And this is about authority. You speak harshly and you give warning to those in authority. You have authority in your home and how you wield that is, needs to be carefully managed. And frankly, responsibility means that I'm going to be accountable for how I lead my home. Her accountability is on a personal level. Your accountability is at authority level, and that's very different. She's called to submit. You're called to lead and love, love and lead. And so you have carry much more on your shoulders, and with responsibility, we understand what happens. When the buck stops here, what happens where it stops? That's where the penalty is, right? That's where the, that's where, so in politics, the buck never stops anywhere, it seems like, lately. But uh, wherever it stops, they say, well, that person is a guilty party. They're going to jail. Even though all these other people might have been involved in it, the, somewhere they had to have this person that, that it landed on, and there was a penalty. When you carry authority and you make this, then the accountability comes forward when, with penalty. And there is a penalty there's a costliness, not just in your 
peaceful home, whether your home is at peace, whether you have contentment there, um, but there is a cost spiritually. And our pastors haven't emphasized it enough. And I believe that is one of the reasons the divorce is so rampant in our churches is because we do not promote this kind of idea that your spiritual life is intimately dependent upon your relationship with your wife. And why do we lack men leading our churches? We would rather have unqualified leadership than no leadership, and that's not God's design. Why do we have problems in leadership in churches? Why do we have an, a, a vacancy of men so now we have women pastors? Why do we have men that are out there who aren't really qualified to be God's word or to be ministers of God's word, but they're leading churches into error and disaster? Because we have a different philosophy than God does. We think, well, we need a leader, a leader, a leader, even if they're a bad leader, the wrong leader. And God says, I'd rather you have no leader than the bad ones. He waits for the righteous. How much better it would be for us to be led by righteous than to be led by the unrighteous and, but in between those two extremes, one being the very best, one being the very worst, is no leadership would be better in the church. Well, why are we missing the righteous leadership? Because we haven't emphasized enough the relationship between husbands and their wives as a premise of leadership. But it is the, one of the first things in the list of qualifications for bishop, Qualification for deacon, husband of one wife, leading his family well. Do you get the idea that that's a priority to God? If it's a requirement for leadership, it is a requirement for a spiritual walk. You want your walk to be enhanced with God? Work on your relationship with your wife. I've had men come to me and say, oh, I, I just don't, you know, I, I don't have enough time to get into scriptures and my wife seems to know so much more about the Bible and, and uh, on and on and on. And I'm like, well, let's start with your relationship with your wife. Huh? You don't need to spend time with me. You need to spend time with your wife. And when that's right, and we can talk about that necessity and your accountability is to God and to your wife um, of whether that's right, then we can start working on these other things. And God will answer your prayers. But let's get your prayer life going first. It's not more knowledge you need of God's word. It might be more knowledge you need of your wife. First. See, that's righteousness. That says, I'm willing to put it into practice what I, as much as I know. Because really, knowledge of God's word is dependent upon someone. It's dependent upon Holy Spirit. It's not a degree from a seminary. It, it's none of that. It's, it's not being able to, to uh, diagram sentences. Um, I'm not saying those things can't help, but it's not dependent upon those things. It's dependent upon Holy Spirit. How do you access Holy Spirit? 
through righteousness. Same thing as accessing God through prayer. Righteousness. You see, it's, it's all built there. And that's why I say we, we focus so much on read God's word, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Well, not always. You can read God's word and pray every day and be stagnant, stagnant, stagnant. If all along the way you have totally neglected righteousness in your life with regard to your spouse, particularly for the men. For gals and children, be submissive to your parents, be submissive to your husband. Um, but for the men with responsibility and accountability, prayers are cut off. Read God's word, pray every day all you want. You're not going to grow in your relationship with God if you're not attentive to what God's word tells us of our responsibilities in our home. And, I, and in terms of leadership in the church, we don't want it. We don't want leadership in our church that isn't a, a biblical, godly person at home. And that's why one of the first relations we look at is relationship between a husband and his wife. What's going on in your home? What's going on in your family? What, what are you two like together? You see a husband and wife that aren't firing on, together in ministry? You don't want them here. You just don't want them here. And I, I've seen these guys. Well, my husband was called to the ministry, but not me. I was like, you shouldn't be here. I didn't say that then because I was young. But now, someone comes in and said that to me, I'd say goodbye. Why? Because your relationship, you should be one. And I'm going to go beyond even one flesh because of the next verse is one-minded. And we're going to study that in a couple weeks. Brethren, take this to heart. You want a better relationship. I'm convinced that you guys do because you're here. Uh, and you're listening on the podcast, perhaps. I'm convinced that you want a better relationship with God. But we've divorced that from relationships with other people. And that's wrong. That's, that's gross error. Your relationship with your wife is part of your relationship with God. Intimately and, and intrinsically part of your relationship with God. And, and then it goes to the family as well. A man who doesn't care for his family is what, according to God's word, worse than an infidel. That's how he describes you. You're worse than a pagan if you don't take care of your family. Wow, no wonder your prayers aren't being heard. Because you know to do right and do not do it. For you, that's sin. And sin is always disruptive of all relationships. Hold to your covenant. You've made a vow before men and before God to that young lady. She might not be young anymore, but usually she's a young lady when you made the vow. Not always. Um, fulfill your vow. God cares more about that than most other things in your life. And that should just be one element of righteousness in your life. But it is a critical one. Because I find very few places in God's Word where it says your prayers are going to stop at the ceiling because this is one of them. But that 
set on you a little bit or unsettle you a little bit. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for a warning. And we know that there are warning passages throughout your scriptures. We all want to talk about your blessings, but Lord, we know there are curses too. That we forget about, that we ignore. We blame you, and Lord, forgive us for that. For being unwilling to consider our own ways in the light of your word. Lord, we're all convicted here. All the men here are convicted. All the husbands are convicted today. For we have maltreated our wives at various places and times. And for that, we ask for your forgiveness. Even as we consider asking them for that forgiveness. Lord, we pray that you might work in our hearts, in our minds, in our speech, in our attitudes, in our actions, that we might love our wives as you love the church. You are a model. Lord, help us to follow that. Remind us of it, not only through the preaching of your word and the reading of your word, but by your spirit. Just bring it upon us time and again. For we want our, our an effective, powerful relationship with you, personal one. And we've jeopardized that, we have sabotaged it by being less of the husbands that, than we should for our wives. Lord, we thank you for this warning in your word, and we carry the responsibility of that. Help us to lead our homes in a manner that glorifies you, that points our children to follow after you with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They might see the evidence of Christ in us by being Christ before our wives. Lord, we thank you for your patience for us, toward us. We pray that we might walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.